everyone. It's time for this week's weekly recap. We are looking at 1 Kings chapter 8 to 2 Kings chapter 8. That was our uh, assigned Bible reading given to us by Bible Discovery and the Discovery Guide. If you don't know what I'm talking about, all the information is going to be in the description box. My name is Corey. I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Are you ready to recap? <laughs> I think so, yeah. There is a lot of uh, narrative history of Israel and Judah that's going to happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to take us through the time period of the kings of Israel. And it would be mm. nice if it stayed the kings of Israel, but that's not what's going to happen. The kingdom is going to split. So, so far uh, in our reading, uh, in the history, the Bible has taken us up to the point of King Solomon. So remember, the first king of Israel was Saul. Then the second king of Israel was David, and David was a dynasty founder. So that means that his sons and then subsequently a bunch of grandsons are going to rule in Jerusalem. But it's going to get a little bit more complicated than that. Let's jump right into it. So we're in the time period of Solomon, which is David's son. First Kings chapter eight. So Solomon has built the temple in Jerusalem at this point, and he he has the Ark of the Covenant uh, that was staying uh, in Jerusalem, thanks to David. Uh, he brings that Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and this is a very significant moment because the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. So this is the presence of God finally having a home in Jerusalem. So this kicks off the dedication of the Jerusalem temple to God and a huge assembly of the Israelite people is held here. And when they're worshiping, um, the, the, the cloud of the presence of God fills the temple. So the last time that we've seen this uh, is back in the time period of the wilderness wandering uh, when Moses was still the leader of Israel and they built the tent tabernacle and uh, as a sign that God's presence was with Israel, a, a cloud filled the tent tabernacle. So the same sign happens here in the temple of Jerusalem. So that would have been quite something to see. And then uh, to finish off this festival of dedication, uh, Solomon offers sacrifices of dedication at the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 9, Solomon uh, goes to the high place at Gibeon, which may sound counterintuitive, but we still have the tent tabernacle there at Gibeon uh, right away. And so that is likely why he went there. And God does appear to Solomon here at Gibeon, and he promises to be at the temple in a very special way uh, and to be with Solomon in a very special way. Uh, basically, God says to Solomon, to paraphrase, to paraphrase here, if you walk before me faithfully, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. But if not, I'll cut your ancestors off and destroy this temple. Hmm. So he, he gives a, a, a roadmap of decision to Solomon. If you follow me faithfully, things are going to be great and the kingdom is going to continue. But if you don't follow me faithfully, this is not going to continue. It is going to end. Later on in chapter nine, we see uh, how Solomon helped pay back Hiram, the king of Tyre. When you look into the details of how Solomon built the temple and his palace, he got a lot of goods from Hiram, the king of Tyre, who was his ally. Uh, and so we're told that in partial payment to Hiram, Solomon gives him some cities, but 
Hiram ends up not liking it. So it's not a very good business deal for uh, Hiram. Uh, we're also told that in order to complete all these building projects, so the temple, the palace, and uh, fortified cities around Israel, uh, Solomon actually taxed labor from the people. So he he had conscription labor, so forced labor. And this is going to be a point of contention very quickly uh, for him. Uh, we're also told how he launched a business venture with Hiram King of Tyre, and that business venture were trade ships, uh, and that it it went really well for them. Mm. So they got quite a bit of wealth from their trade ships. Okay, First Kings chapter ten. This is the famous visit of the Queen of Sheba. Now, there's a lot of mythology that people have built up around this visit of the Queen of Sheba. But when you really just stick to the biblical account, it lets us know a few things that the Queen of Sheba visited to see if the rumors of Solomon's splendor were true. Because remember, he is very wealthy now, thanks to this trade alliance with Hiram. Um, we're also told uh, that uh, the the Queen of Sheba and Solomon traded goods, and then she went back to Sheba as well. So, um, you know, maybe her land, this is speculation, but perhaps her land was one of the lands that those trade ships visited. Mm -hmm. So that would facilitate her learning about Solomon. We are told about Solomon's splendor, so how rich he was. We're, we're given a description of his throne, that it was covered in ivory and gold, and there were six steps up to reach the seat right. of his throne, and there were lion statues right. flanking the throne. Just majestic. Majestic. Yeah. Not a humble throne. Right. But what's really interesting there, too, is is that when we think of wisdom today, we often think about it in like an, like an abstract sense, like someone who's really rational, or even, let's say, someone who's just like goes with the flow in like a very, mm -hmm. like, it depends where you are, what side you are on the spectrum. But... um. What's interesting here is that Solomon's wisdom is know-how. A lot of it. It's like he understands politics. He understands how to, how to apply it. He understands architecture, economics, right? So when she comes and, and he answers all of her questions, it's not necessarily just like spiritual questions. It's like it could be economic questions. It could mm -hmm. be a lot of things that have to mm -hmm. do with how to run a kingdom, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's like he, he understood how to apply very abstract thoughts mm -hmm. and what would be abstract for most people but he understood it how to and that's what makes the wisdom here so interesting it wasn't just you knew things it was you knew how to apply those things yeah he yeah. knew how to make the kingdom at least physically successful that's right but what's ironic is it's going to be he's going to have to choose between that know-how that that human understanding i'm running a human kingdom ha here i can make it very prosperous he's gonna have to choose between that yes and following the law of god right because there are certain things that the law of god outlaws for kings that if the kings did those things they would be more prosperous humanly speaking yes so solomon is in this place where he knows it's going to be better physically for him to break some of the laws of God. So what is he going to choose to do? I guess we find that out next chapter. Next chapter. <laughs> well, even at the end of this chapter, yeah. because we're told, well, we've already got hints of it mm. because he's very, very wealthy, which Deuteronomy chapter 17 rules for kings. They were not supposed to oh, hoard wealth. I was going to read that, but yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, they were not supposed to hoard wealth. Yeah. And then at the end of chapter 10, we're told that Solomon was trading and collecting chariots and horses from Egypt and kings in Deuteronomy chapter Can 17. Can I just read? I was going to read that next, but let me just read it Do now it. then. yeah. Okay, so Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 to 19. The king, moreover, right, this is God speaking, mm-hmm. must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. All right? Yep. Broken. He must not take many wives. We're going to find out that was very broken. <laughs> very broken. Or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Broken. Broken. Yeah. <laughs> when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law taken from that of the Levitical priests. Unknown. Unknown, but <laughs> but as we know, you know. It, Solomon may have done it. Yes. He wrote lots of stuff. He, yes, he, he did. He was into books. Yeah. Th- yeah. There was a period maybe, let's say not his whole life, because it says it is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life. Yeah. Broken. Okay, there it is. So that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow the care, uh, follow his words carefully in the law uh, and his decrees. Right. So, it's, so so far, the the author of First Kings is letting us. It's he's the author of First Kings is writing these things down for us to give us an account of how Solomon is going to go wrong. Right. He's setting up the steps for us. So, so oh, and I wanted to say. Regarding Deuteronomy chapter 17, people might be thinking to themselves, well, why would those be the rules for kings? Right. And it seems to be that this is this is about trust issues. So uh, wealth and chariots and horses and wives, uh, those three things all had to do with uh with the ability of your kingdom to defend itself. So if you had wealth, you could wage war, you could hire warriors. If you had a large chariot and horse force, same thing. You had uh, defensive and offensive power. And wives, specifically royal wives in the ancient world, these were not marriages of love or even marriages of lust. These, this is referring multiple wives is referring to marriages of alliances, political alliances. So today, countries have political alliances, but instead of a wife, they they will send over an ambassador, right, who will live in the country and and represent their country in parliament. In the ancient world, specifically in this area of the ancient world wives did that. So the princesses of one country would be married off to various different countries and they would be that ambassador. And however the king treated and and the royal court treated that wife, treated that woman, uh, she was symbolic of the nation that she came for. So if she was not happy with her treatment, the alliance would not be in good standing. If she was happy with her treatment, the alliance would be in good standing. I know we're wasting too much time here. But I know. The last thing would be <laughs> but that. It's interesting to explore these ideas. It is. And the last thing here, I think, to, just to make a comment on is that what's interesting, by contrast to how probably other kings worked, it says here that Solomon actually loved his wives. Now, I can't say he loved them in the same sense, you know, as a monogamous relationship. But what, it, what, it, what you have here is that yes. through the his love of his wife is what allowed him to be led astray. It was part of that. So it's like God knows, like, look, be monogamous, right? Mm-hmm. But if you take a multiple wives and you start loving them, you're going to love what else comes with them, right? Well, and, yes. So yeah. he treated them well. So yes. we don't know if... 
if he emotionally loved them in that way. But what we do know, he may have, but what we do know from, and we're talking first Kings 11 now, we're jumping yes. ahead. But what we do know is that he treated them well. Yes. Really well. I, I, that's what I was saying. It wasn't. Yeah. It's not equivalent to a monogamous relationship, but the idea is that it does mention that. And so as you see here, is that like through God's law, he establishes a way that you can properly love a wife but when you start doing things the wrong way, you're, the strengths of God's law become your weakness. Right. That's what's interesting. So it's like right. the ability to love then becomes a weakness. Anyway, sorry. Okay. That's another, time, another time. So, right. so, so. First uh, Kings chapter 11, all of Solomon's wives. Okay, I'll read you verses 2 to 5 uh, of First Kings 11. They, meaning uh, the wives, were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. So that's those political alliances, mm -hmm. the royal birth. So 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So these were secondary wives, likely also alliances, but they wouldn't be royal birth. So perhaps these were tribal leaders, daughters, and things of that, of that nature. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed the Ashtoreth, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Okay. So we've already talked about these, the concept of these political allies and, and that their treatment needed to be taken seriously. And, and Solomon did take it seriously. You know, he, he were even told how he built high places and temples for these other gods so that these people, these women, these wives of his would feel like their nations were represented mm -hmm. in Israel. And he participated in the worship of these gods yeah. To be like, see, we're partners, we're true allies. Uh, not good. So God, as a result, in chapter 11, tells Solomon that he will tear the kingdom away from Solomon's ancestors, but for the sake of David, uh, that David's descendants will still have one tribe to rule over mm. and the city of Jerusalem. We're told that God raises up enemies against Solomon. So in the, the latter part of his reign, he, the peace of Israel is shattered. So at the beginning he has peace, at the end he doesn't. So um, there's a few enemies here that are mentioned. H Hadad, the Edomite, Zoba of Aram. And there is a sort of internal rebellion of the Israelites against Solomon in someone named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was over the forced labor of the Israelites mm. and then started campaigning against Solomon and had to flee for his life right. to Egypt. Um, we're also told that a prophet of God named Ahijah commissions this Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as the next king of those other 10 tribes of Israel who are going to split away from Solomon's descendants. Okay, the end of chapter 11, Solomon dies a fool. So someone who is not serving God. Very sad. Hmm. Uh, First Kings chapter 12, we hear about Solomon's son, Rehoboam. He really messes up as prophesied by the prophet of God. The assembly of Israel come to Rehoboam when they're making him king. And they ask him to 
release them from the forced, the taxed labor that Solomon had put them under. Um, and he says, no, I will not. In fact, I'm going to increase it because I am your authority and you will listen to me. And they rebel against him. And they call Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, back from Egypt and they make him their king. Only the tribe of Judah, which is David's tribe, so Rehoboam's ancestral tribe, stay faithful to Rehoboam as king. And this included some of Benjamin as well, uh, the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so uh, Rehoboam is not going to let go of the kingship so easily. This is about to turn into a full-blown civil war. Rehoboam it gathers the tribe of Judah as a military force and it starts to march against the other tribes. But the other tribes stone they, they, they do not want civil war, so they stone the military commander of Rehoboam. Rehoboam just escapes. He almost dies. And a prophet named Shemaiah tells them to stop and go home, tells Rehoboam's military, God does not want you to do this. And so they listen to this man of God. We're told, very unfortunately, that Jeroboam, in order to dissuade his people now, these 10 tribes of Israel, from traveling back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple of Jerusalem. He builds his own temples, two cultic centers, one in the city of Bethel and one in the city of Dan. So on the two extremities of his kingdom, uh, it, he sets them up with golden calves that he calls Yahweh. So this is very similar uh, to the Exodus event. Uh, okay. First Kings chapter 13. So now we have two split kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. This is a very weird chapter, chapter 13. This is where a man of God travels from Judah, so from the area of Jerusalem, to Bethel, that new cultic site of Israel. He prophesies against the altar of the golden calf and he t he's like, my prophecy is going to come true. Here's the sign. There's going to be an earthquake and the altar is going to split open. King Jeroboam is at the altar when the man of God shows up. So they're probably during a feast, probably. And his hand becomes paralyzed when he stretches it out to try to catch the prophet. So he's like, go get him. And his hand becomes paralyzed. The prophet ends up praying for Rehoboam and he's healed. So there's all these signs that the prophet is a true prophet of God. Um, but we learn that this prophet has been told not to eat or drink while he's in the land of Israel and not to return on the same road that he did right. but to kind of make a circuit. Don't go back. An old prophet living in the city of Bethel lies to this man of God by saying that an angel appeared to him and gave him a message that it's okay for you to come to my house and eat with me. An angel told me this and the man of God believes him. And as they're eating, this Bethel prophet delivers a message to the man of God. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command God gave you. You came back with me and ate bread and water in the place where he told you not to. You're going to die away from home. And so as the man of God starts traveling back to Judah on his donkey, he's mauled by a lion. And the weirdest part, the weirdest detail that we're given is that the donkey and the lion stay beside the body mm. waiting for someone to discover it. So what we have here is this very brutal 
form of communication, this sign that the word of God must be obeyed. Yeah. There's all these people, including Solomon, including Rehoboam, including Jeroboam, including this man of God, who hear the actual word of God. Mm. And then someone comes along and is like, well, you know, an angel told me this, or well, right. you know, it would be better for your kingdom if you actually did this, or, you know, and then they listen to those things over the word of God, and it always leads to one place. Right. Okay, I'm going to speed up a little bit, because yep. we've Go. been taking lots of time, which is nice. There's really cool stories. <laughs> yeah. First Kings chapter 14, this is a story about Ahijah the prophet. In Ahijah's old age, he begins to prophesy against uh the house of King Jeroboam, so against Jeroboam and his family. And um, this situation is brought on because Jeroboam's son is sick. Uh, and, but uh, we're told through this whole situation that he's, the son is actually going to die because God has found good in him. So Jeroboam's family is evil. This little boy or this this child, we don't know how old he was, but this child actually has has good in him, but he is going to, as a mercy and a judgment against Jeroboam's family, he is not going to survive. So I want to read to you verses 12 and 13. Ahijah the prophet says this to Jeroboam's uh to the representatives of Jeroboam. As for you, go back home, which is actually his wife, if I'm remembering right. I forgot to write it in my notes. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He's the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. So we see here that death for this boy is actually a mercy in this case. It's sparing him from the judgment and from the evil that is going to come on the house of Jeroboam. So then the last part of the chapter jumps back to the kingdom of Judah and to King Rehoboam. We're told that Rehoboam's mother was an Ammonite wife of Solomon. So Rehoboam had been raised with these pagan religious practices and that's what he continued to institute and pursue in Judah. Um, in the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, we're told that Pharaoh Shishak of Egypt attacks and he takes the treasure of the temple and palace. So Solomon's kingdom is gone and now Solomon's wealth is gone and now the temple in Jerusalem has been severely humbled. First Kings chapter 15, Abijah, the son of Rehoboam, becomes king and he rules for three years. Uh, after Abijah, Asa, his son, becomes king of Judah and reigns for 41 years, which is a pretty long reign. Asa, we're told, followed God uh, and we're given a list of things that he did to try to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem from pagan practices. We're told he expelled male shrine prostitutes. He got rid of idols. He deposed his grandmother from the role of queen mother because she was worshiping idols. Um, the only thing that we're told that he didn't do was remove all of the high places in Judah, even though his heart was dedicated to God. 
um, we're also told that Asa had to make a treaty with the king of Aram, Damascus, uh, and he used all of the remainder of the temple and palace treasures in order to save Judah from Israel. So Israel begins to make war against Judah, and in order to save themselves, they had to pay the king of Aram to start a war with Israel so that Israel's attention would be diverted. Hmm. So it's not going well. Right. For Judah. Chapter 16. Uh, actually, the, the end of chapter 15, we learned that in Israel, um, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, was overthrown. Uh, so he was murdered by a man named Basha, who killed, murdered Jeroboam's entire family. Yeah. Um, and Basha reigned as king of Israel for 24 years. Chapter 16, we learn a bit more about Basha, that he was just as evil as Jeroboam was. There's a prophecy against his house. Um, and his, when his son becomes king of Israel, he only lasts two years before he's assassinated by his own military commander. And again, how these assassinations worked um, is that they would kill the king and they would kill anyone in the king's family that might have a royal claim to the throne. So this happens again by a man named Zimri. But Zimri only rules in Israel for seven days. The Israelites don't like Zimri and they decide to declare a man named Omri, who is a military commander, king over Israel. It, Zimri knows that he's about to be executed. So rather than being executed, he commits suicide by burning the royal palace at Terza down around himself. This is important because Omri then has a decision to make. Am I going to rebuild the palace at Terza, the capital city of Israel, or am I just going to build a new capital city, which is what Omri does. He builds the famous capital city of Israel, Samaria. Omri rules for 12 years. When he dies, his son is probably the most famous king of Northern Israel, Ahab. Ahab rules for 22 years. He marries Jezebel and they establish Baal worship as the prominent form of religion in Israel. Uh, they, they're, they're actively seeking to replace the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh, with the worship of Baal. They're not interested in mixing the religions. They want to replace it. Um, so, and we're going to see this as Ahab and Jezebel interact with Elijah and the other prophets of God. So 1 Kings 17, this is all about Elijah the prophet. Uh, we're told some really cool things about Elijah the prophet, how he enacts a drought in the land of Israel, that he himself is miraculously fed by ravens. Um, he goes to the area of Sidon and he is provided for by a Gentile widow. So a non-Israelite widow in a place called Zarephath. And um, because of this widow's obedience to God in taking care of Elijah, even though she had almost no more food left, she was going to die too because of this drought, uh, this famine. Um, uh, God starts miraculously restoring her flour and oil. And, and, and she, gets, she receives this promise, while there's this drought going on, you're not going to run out of these things. Mm. And her son is raised from the dead. Right. By and Elijah. Oh, and, oh, and by, the by the way. Just by the way. By the way. Elijah also yeah. raises her son from the dead. You know. 
Okay, chapter 18, three years into the drought, Elijah goes to King Ahab. Um, we're told that Ahab and Jezebel's palace administrator is actually a secret good guy. His name is Obadiah, and he's a follower of God, and he has managed to save about 100 prophets of God. Uh, we learn at this point that Ahab and Jezebel are actively murdering, hunting, and murdering prophets of God. Hmm. And so he manages to secretly save a hundred of them. Uh, this is the chapter where Elijah challenges the Baal prophets to a sacrifice contest on Mount Carmel. That's in there. Uh, we often learn about this in Sunday school. If you've grown up in church, what we don't learn about in Sunday school is the detail that Elijah, after winning, <laughs> then yeah. kills all 450 of the Baal prophets. He right. executes them. Yikes. Well, And the drought is ended. Chapter 19, obviously Jezebel is angry at Elijah for this, and she's intent on killing him as revenge for those prophets. Elijah runs away, and he's at the end of his rope. He even asks God, like, please just kill me. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. He says, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. He wants to be done. Yeah. Um, God, rather than killing him, gives him final missions, essentially. He tells him to go anoint the people who will bring down the dynasty of Ahab and Jezebel. Go anoint Hazael, a pagan king of Aram. Go anoint Jehu, who was a military commander, as the new king over Israel. Mm. And go find Elisha. This is a man who will succeed you as prophet. Right. Uh, and then we get the call of Elisha here in chapter 19. In chapter 20, we're told that a king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, attacks Israel and its capital city of Samaria. Ahab manages to defeat Ben-Hadad with the help of God. So Ahab likes to play both sides here, right? He yeah. listens when he needs to listen, but then he also doesn't listen when it's not suited right. to him. He has the best, speaking of suited, he has like the best line here. Could be the best movie line. One who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Yeah, he when, says that to he, ben when, <laughs> Yeah, that's quite a line. Anyways. Yeah, because Ben-Dad's yeah. trying to intimidate Israel, like, just surrender. Yeah. Just give up. I know. That's an amazing line. Anyway, so I just wanted it's to say that. It's really good. Yeah. It's really good. I, I would be very proud of myself if I... If, like, <laughs> yeah. can't you just imagine him being like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such very a movie line. Yeah. Okay. Um, but here's the thing. God helps Ahab defeat Ben-Hadad, but has told Ahab that when he defeats him, he needs to execute Ben-Hadad. Ahab defeats Ben-Hadad, but instead of execute him, he makes a treaty yeah. with him. My brother, come here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a prophet of God condemns Ahab. Again, not being obedient. First uh, Kings chapter 21, Ahab and Jezebel kill a man named Naboth. Naboth. Naboth, so that they can confiscate his family property, which is a vineyard close to the Sumerian palace. This is very bad. This is just them not listening to the law. Again, another example of them not listening to the law of God. Um, we have a, a prophecy of Elijah against Ahab, in which Ahab responds with humility to. And so God moves this prophesied disaster against Ahab to the time of Ahab's son. So God offers him a stay of execution. Mm. Um, 
But in that very same chapter, it says that there was never a king so evil as Ahab. So what's, what's amazing here is we see God's willingness to still work with people in the moment. Right. He knows what way Ahab's life is going to go. But in the moment, he's he's offering an actual choice to Ahab. Yeah. Here's what's going to happen to you. How are you going to respond? When Ahab responds correctly with humility, God's like, okay, I can work with that. Right. And offers him a stay of execution. Now, Ahab's life, like our, all of ours, is a series of choices. And unfortunately, he only every once in a while responded in the right way to God. Right. He was the most evil king. But if God is still willing to offer legitimate choices to the most evil king of Israel, that says something a lot about God's personality. Yeah, for sure. Character. Yeah. Okay, chapter 22. Ahab, evil king Ahab, makes an alliance with godly King Jehoshaphat of Judah and Jerusalem. I'm doing this because it turns out so badly and Jehoshaphat is such a good king. Why Jehoshaphat? Why? <laughs> Why would you do this? Uh, the only prophet of God that Ahab and Jehoshaphat consult before going to war. Okay, we know why Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab. It was to survive war that was right. coming against the land, but still it was not a good idea. So they consult a prophet of God before going to this war. And the prophet prophesies that Ahab will die in battle. And as a result, Ahab has the prophet thrown into prison. That's going to help. It doesn't. Ahab dies in battle, even though he goes into battle disguised. And Jehoshaphat does not go into battle disguised. Uh, Ahab gets shot with an arrow and he bleeds to death. So Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, who he's the son of Asa, who is also a good king of Judah. He reigns 25 years and he's a really good king, except for that peace treaty with Ahab. Uh, Ahab's son, Ahaziah, becomes king of Israel and Samaria. He's evil, spoiler alert, mm. two years. Nothing much good comes from Ahab and Jezebel, unfortunately. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 1. Ahaziah, that, that son of Ahab, king of Israel, he dies uh, because he falls, through an, uh, he falls from an upper floor in Samaria and he dies uh, after a drama with Elijah and a military commander. There's an interesting drama in 1 mm. Kings 1, but... It ends up with Ahaziah dying. Second Kings chapter two, this is when Elijah is famously taken to heaven uh, while Elisha watches. And then Elisha continues on this ministry of prophet in Israel. Uh, there are signs that he performs to prove this to everyone that he has received the right. prophethood ministry from Elijah. <laughs> the double portion? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so he splits the Jordan River uh, to walk across it. He heals a spring of unusable water. Uh, young men who ridicule Elisha as a prophet, oh yeah, here, here comes this so-called prophet, they end up being mauled by bears. Mm. Yeah. Chapter three, um, another son of Ahab takes the throne from Ahaziah because Ahaziah died, remember, in chapter one. His name is Joram. Uh, he wasn't as bad as Ahab and Jezebel. He got rid of some of the Baal worship in Israel. Uh, Joram enlists the help of Jehoshaphat and Judah to help deal with uh, nations who are rebelling against Israel at this, 
at this point, mostly, most notably Moab. Mm. Um, Elisha, we see Elisha prophesying to music in this chapter, which is really interesting. And then Israel ends up having really good success in the military affairs that they're dealing with against Moab, but they are not able to kill the king of Moab or re-suppress him. Mm -hmm. The Moabites used to pay tribute to Israel. Chapter four, Elisha helps the widow of a prophet of God. God multiplies her oil for her to sell and to get out of debt and saves her son from debt slavery. So really similar uh, stories. It's comparing essentially Elijah and Elisha in this chapter. Elisha raises uh, the Shunammite's son from the dead in this chapter, and he is able to reverse food poisoning at the city of Gilgal, and he is able to multiply loaves of barley bread to feed 100 men. So these are just the signs of Elisha. In chapter 5, we get a pagan military commander of Aram, who is an on-again, off-again enemy of Israel. Right. His name is Naaman. He comes to Elisha to be healed of his leprosy. Um, and he is. He's healed of his leprosy. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, uh, lies and ends up taking a payment from Naaman. And as a result, Gehazi gets leprosy. Yes. So he gets what Naaman was healed uh, from. We, we got a question about this that I answered oh, did we? A, a while back. And the question was, how does that work? Like, as it says, your your descendants will have leprosy forever. Uh-huh. And th- some people are confused by this, but a lot of times in the Old Testament, it uses the word forever. It's conditional. It's not like yeah. forever, but it's also, it, a lot of the time, it's not like eternity. A lot of time, it just means from now on, from this point moving forward for as long as can be kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Until as other, long as you have descendants. Uh, that's or, right. As long as these things work out. So the yeah. concept here is that like, it's not forever, forever. So there's just different ways of looking at that. But yeah, I'll, I'll post that link in the description as well. Because it could idea. be helpful if anyone has any questions about it. Yeah. Okay, a few more chapters here. Second Kings chapter six. So the prophets begin building a place to meet. Mm. Like they need a place to meet. So they're building one and one of them drops an ax head into the Jordan River, which is a big deal because it's not his. He's borrowed it and it's expensive. And Elisha makes it float. So another sign of Elisha. Right. We're told all about how Elisha told the king all of the places that the Aramean army was camping. So he prayed to God and God gave him wisdom of where the enemy would be without having scouts. Uh, we're told about how the Arameans try to capture Elisha, but how the army of heaven fights against the Arameans. Elisha leads these miraculously blinded Arameans to Samaria, this capital city of Israel, and ends these raids that are happening in Israel. So this is all about the warfare of ancient Israel, but how the prophet of God was really integral in a very interesting way Mm. in this warfare. So if you want to know more details about that, go back and read chapter six because it's really interesting. Um, Samaria does end up getting besieged in this chapter, which means the enemy army encamps around the walls and doesn't allow anyone or anything to come or go. So the famine inside the city, because no food can get into the city, becomes so great that people start eating each other. So as people die of starvation, the people are then 
uh, forced to cannibalize the corpses, which is horrible. In chapter 7, Elisha prophesies that the very next day, God will lift the siege of Samaria. Uh, and then that does happen, even though it doesn't look like it. There's um, the Arameans ended up fleeing and just leaving their campsite in the middle of the night. So it looks like they're still there, but it's discovered uh, that they are not there in a really interesting way. Chapter 8, the last one we're going to look at today, Elisha prophesies to Hazael of Damascus, uh, who is a military commander, and Damascus is the capital city of Aram, so this is an enemy nation, that Elisha knows he's going to murder, he, Elisha knows that Hazael is going to murder King Ben-Hadad, and then he is going to become an enemy to Israel. Mm -hmm. Now, Jehoram the son of Jehoshaphat, the good king of Judah in Jerusalem, is married to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. That political alliance that Jehoshaphat had made with Ahab and Jezebel mm -hmm. was sealed with a marriage right. of Jehoshaphat's son to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. We're told that Jehoram was evil and that he reigned for eight years in Judah and Jerusalem. Um, when Jehoram dies, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram and Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, mm -hmm. becomes king of Judah. And he only reigns for one year, and he also is evil. Right. And that closes up 2 Kings chapter 8. There we go. Today. Any final thoughts? No. This no. is a really no. ominous, we see like really good kings of Judah and Jerusalem, and then that marriage alignment alliance with Ahab and Jezebel. Mm. Now we've got two really bad kings and it's not going to get much better. Okay, guys, comments, questions down below. If you have any of those, I hope you have a really good week and I hope that you're enjoying Kings. Let me know. Is this a easy portion of scripture for you to read? Do you enjoy reading the time period of the Kings like I do? Or is this maybe tedious reading for you? I'd be interested to know. Let me know. And I hope you have a good week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.